last night, was uh, brought to the hospital. On Thursday, he had uh, worked out with his sons, foolish man, and uh, lifted weights and whatnot, and uh, had some kind of pain in his back, which uh, radiated into his front. The radiation to the front became a frontal problem, and uh, when he was at work on Friday, he had a cardiac episode. So uh, he's down in the Rock Hill uh, Hospital, and uh, I got an opportunity to visit him this morning, spend an hour with him, and uh, try and laugh a little bit with him. Um, I don't know if morphine helps with that or not, but um, he was in tremendous pain, tremendous pain, to the point where not only the morphine drip and the nitroglycerin drip but they had to actually come in and give him an additional shot of morphine uh, just to uh, make him comfortable. So uh, I think it should remind us of the frailty of our lives and the fact that we are but a hand's breadth away from death. And we are held in life by the Master. Somebody say amen. Amen. I... Uh, I understand from Noah that the uh, catheterization procedure has revealed that his arteries are too small to actually have surgery uh, to clear those blockages, so they're going to use medication to do that. Uh, I know that some of the young men want to go visit um, this afternoon. It's my understanding that he will be there at least for the remainder of the afternoon, so if that's your, your pleasure. Uh, then that's the deal there. I, I want to thank Jonathan uh, for, for breaking protocol appropriately um, and praying for, uh, for Joe this morning during the prayer service. That's what that prayer is there for. So, praise God. Uh, on a lighter note, it is... Somebody else is pregnant. <laughs> I asked. I asked that earlier, and, and I got a no on that. Um, but I do know. <laughs> that's right. You raise your hand. Stop that. It's a miracle. So. Uh, <laughs> a Shabbos miracle. I remember nine years ago, I went to the to the uh, airport yet again, and uh, Scott and Suzanne came home with another. In fact, I think two. Then right. You come home with two then, or was it one? Was it the last one? Just one? Just him? With a little, with a little bambino. 
a really tiny, really tiny little guy. And uh, Micah turns nine today. All right. Happy birthday, dear Micah. Happy birthday to you. Micah, we're looking for you to take up the bass part in most of the songs from now on. For those of you who are visiting with us and uh, watching from online, um, Micah has been the youngest reader, male reader in our community for, what, 15, 16 years? Running and, uh, <laughs> in a row, yeah. And uh, has really set the bar for our uh, Simchat Torah uh, party, and I'm proud to know him and his parents. So, uh, as I'm reminded of uh, Rav Spurlock's comment the first time that uh, this little young man with the Korean accent uh, read the first uh, chapter of Genesis. Um, Rick praised Suzanne for her work with him to teach him how to how to read. And uh, you know, Susie, keep it up. Doing good. Doing good. Um, so we had like. 40, maybe 42 birthdays coming up. So I know, I think the next one would be my daughter Mary. Oh, Lori. Lori's is? Lori's is? Today. Today. Oh. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Lori. Happy birthday to you. For those of you visiting or do not know, Lori is with child, the Woo! second child. She is uh, uh, providing this uh, stellar man here. <laughs> and also me. <laughs> and then after Lori, where is my daughter? Ah, my youngest daughter will be 20 years old on the morrow. And I understand that uh, I may get this wrong, but I think Rick Spurlock turns like 42. Is it Wednesday? Wednesday. He's shaking his head. He's smiling. Marianne, we don't celebrate birthdays. No. Once you hit 50, you don't celebrate. Tell me. I do. I do. It's certainly not. It's only when you get to 50 that you realize. That's right. All right. Again. Gregory is your point of contact when we're done here. If uh, if you want to go down to Rock Hill, the drive is not so bad, really. And it's, we it's not as it's not as bad as going to Greg and, and Gabby's house. It's really not that bad. It's actually, <laughs> first, yeah. And, and just also to clarify, um, we are kind of carpooling with groups here, so I got a little more space in my car if you want to ride, whatever. But um, it's not just the men. My wife is going to go. Um, I think Gabby's going with Johnny. So um, if some of the ladies want to follow along, so there you have it. You'll see Gregory and evidently the other son-in-law, and you guys just deal with who's going where and how and all of that. And uh, and be safe. So, um, please remember. Although I would just, if I could just tap on that. Of course. Let's make. Let's also be just cognizant that we don't 
Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that I know everybody probably wants to go visit, but if we have fifty people show up at yeah. once, yeah. he may have a coronary. No. Yeah. yeah. So I was going to say too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Yeah. So I was going to say uh, thank you, Greg. That uh, a couple things you should keep in mind. One is that you know Joe's Joe's stoned. Really. I mean, he may not even remember that you're there. His wife is not. And his kids are not. So let's let's keep that in mind. Overwhelming him in a tiny little, and it is tiny, little hospital room is perhaps not the best thing. Um, well, I woke Noah up when I got there because he had slept that night, uh, the night before, on the cot. Um, but he was, he and I were leaving, and Karen was coming in to, to take the next shift. So... You might want, instead of going to the hospital, you might want to go visit the family and comfort them. Is there any meals we can supply for the family? I don't know where we're at there yet, but I know that uh, Joe really doesn't do most of the cooking, so <laughs> meals may not be what's necessary, but income. I think that, you know. If, if so, somebody could call me. Me, we we're not going to call you. We're going to we're going to put something together, and then you can just sign up like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, but the the women will figure out what's going on there. And God bless you for bringing that up. I just passed the news to my wife. Today. Yeah, there you go. Right. So just have yeah have her, have her people get with my people. And yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So we do the the idea here is we are community, and in community we. We feel the pain, or we feel the burdens, and we want to relieve those burdens. Amen? Amen. Amen. So it's not just visit the sick while they're in the hospital or something like that. It's also remembering that a wife of many, many, many years is now perhaps thinking she may lose her husband. To me, that's a, that's a greater visit and ministry opportunity than visiting a guy who's stoned out of his mind and you know doesn't really know what's going on. So your mileage may vary, but let's keep that in mind, okay? Am I forgetting anything at all before I sit down and my blessed son-in-law comes up and leads us in this fabulous, awesome portion? Judy Bartos' birthday is the 27th. Tuesday's not here, but... Tuesday! It's actually before Rick's. Yes. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Okay. So, Janine, there he is. Okay. I just had, um, I don't know if anybody checked, but I had a few things in the lost and found over the last few weeks, which were like a kipa and a container and a mason jar. And we appreciate all those because if it stays there three weeks, we put it on eBay. You know, it's a great deal. Dining room table, please. Dining room table. And of course, if you come on a Tuesday night looking for items, the lost and found is actually in the pantry, so now we know that. Yes, son. It's off topic. Well, blessed son-in-law, if you add the letter A, it says basil. So you can call Joshua your basil. No, that was right on top. If you look at the root of it, it's... The Get out! <laughs> <laughs> Get on the stool. Sorry. 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 Sorry.
in the midrash, they're pulling all sorts of crazy things together. If you want to get, if you want to, if you want to find out how circumcision, no more wine for you. If you want to find out how circumcision is connected to Chesed, talk to this man. Um, you can explain that. Basil is good for you. I like basil. It is. What? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Only got one shot at this. Um, actually, it's interesting that we bring up circumcision because um, that will make an appearance later on in our parasha this morning. Or this afternoon. So, um, we are talking about parasha bo, um, which is literally the word come. Come. Uh, and it's really, I feel like if, you, if you've ever... Um, Oh my goodness! Pick any movie with like a high power, a person in great power who knows that they're in charge, um, or even a book you might have read, or even real life situations. It's like someone who is in real control of a situation. They don't negotiate; they make demands. They say, "This is how it's going to be, and that's it." And um, <laughs> well, he thinks he's that much in charge. He's not really. Uh, the point is that the ultimate person in charge, the ultimate one in charge, is Hashem. And in this parasha, you really get that th- this is not a negotiation. This is not a conversation. It's not a dialogue. It's not like, okay, Pharaoh, you give a little, I'll give a little. It's all or nothing. And that's really the way that God always works. Because really, if you, one of the things I was reading just this week, um, if you happen to have the unique special opportunity to do anything involving the Breslov group, and they send you that little sidur, um, it's pretty cool. Highly recommend that you don't plan on praying quickly if you're going to pray from that guy because it's totally different from the one you're used to. But um, one of the things they translate it, we say, um, Adonai, uh, Hashem, your God is true at the end of the Shema. But in the Reslav Sador, the, they translate it as Hashem, your God is truth. Um, it's a, in other words, he is the definition of truth. And what's really cool is that, um, that's why I say about this portion is that God doesn't negotiate because God is truth. There's no like, there's no way to work around that. There's no way to like sell, you know, make a trade with him or make a deal because he is the exist. He is exactly what is supposed to be. So when he says something, there's no negotiating that point. There's no, well, I don't really feel like it. So how about I'll just go halfway and we'll meet, you know, somewhere in the middle. Um, and that's just kind of the way that we like to interact with people. But that's not the way we can interact with God. And he makes that very clear to Pharaoh in this particular portion. Um, I don't know, it's just the whole way through, you just kind of almost have this, you know, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse kind of thing going on where he's constantly, where like Pharaoh keeps going back, okay, 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 never mind, you can go, but not with this. And Moses is like, actually, Pharaoh, you're going to tell us to go with everything and you're going to give us offerings on the way out, you know, we'll talk again later. And um, his, his going back and forth is, to me, evidence that Hashem is the one that's controlling him. Because as a, as a pharaoh, as a king, you would typically not be that indecisive. Mm. I mean, you would have had a, a lot of experience in making decisions, and he is just all over the place. And, you know, I think the Midrash is the one that says, like, every time pharaoh would kind of start getting a little more soft, then, like, Hashem would strengthen his servants. And they'd be like, no, come on, you can't give in. And, and they would keep, would keep, like, playing them off of each other, and he was just incredibly indecisive. It's true. It's a really good point. And, um, again, it goes back to the idea of who's in charge. Um, Pharaoh's used to being in charge, so he can say whatever he wants most of the time and very decisive. But in this case, he he realizes he's beginning to realize that he's not really in control of the whole situation. Um, but unfortunately for him, 
he has already gotten to a point where he is so deep in his rebellion against God that um, he's kind of crossed the line, as That's it were. The point of no return. And and we see um, a couple weeks ago we talked about the fact that Israel had descended in their sin all the way to level forty nine out of fifty, and um, if they get to fifty, then it's like that's too far gone. You can't come back from fifty. But 49 was not, and Hashem redeemed them. And, the, and it reminds me of the, 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 the saying, um, I think it's Hillel from Perkei Avot, which is, uh, repent one day before you die. And the idea comes, it's like, you never know how far is too gone. And so it's like, you can never look at your life and say, oh, well, you know, I, I, I've done some bad things. I will repent tomorrow. You can't, you can't like, you know, negotiate that out with God and be like, well, I'll just do this once more. Because typically what happens with sin is the more you do it, the more you reinforce it, the deeper you get into it. So eventually, with Pharaoh, what we see is Pharaoh crosses that line. Whether he realizes it or not, he goes too far, and judgment has to fall on him. So Hashem, then, is the one who's strengthening his heart, giving him bad, encouraging his servants to give him bad advice or whatever, so that he's unable to repent. That's a really scary place to be. You ever read the, the um, Jonathan Edwards sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? As terrifying as that is... At least at some level within that sermon, he was calling them to repent. When you get to Pharaoh's spot, that is terrifying because there is no hope then. Because you're facing against the creator of the universe. I got Lori and then my dad. Just a lot of things in this part talk are really resonant with today. Mm. You know? I mean, mm-hmm. you think about, like, Iran, for example, um, is bent on destroying Israel. And they're just, they're just going to do it no matter what. That's what their, their method is. And you've got... Like, I see Pharaoh's advisors, like, there are some people that, like, seem to be the voice of reason out there, but you ultimately kind of think, you know, I mean, you almost wonder if this is Hashem, I mean, obviously he is in charge, and he is in some level orchestrating this, but just that he might multiply his wonders, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know. It's interesting. And it's cool, I like you mentioning the fact that God's working through all this, because one of the things we read when we get into Jeremiah, um, we read a little bit about Egypt today in Jeremiah, it was bad news. But in another part of Jeremiah, it actually talks about Egypt coming to repentance as a nation. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and Hashem, I think at one point, calls them his, is it? His, son. his son. So you see that language. In other words, the idea being that even though this looks like the wrath of God, this almost, it almost comes off spiteful. Like, I'm just going to nail them for this, and I'm going to nail them here. And like, but his goal in all of this is, is that somebody repent. His, his, his desire is he realizes that a person living in sin is worse than a person suffering. So his goal is to get them to change their heart. And his long-term goal, and we're talking thousands of years, is to bring Egypt back. So I got my dad, and then I got more hands. Uh, well, just on the, in, the, in, the, in the notion of Pharaoh being a powerful and a, uh, and, a, uh, and a strong leader, he would certainly know the art of negotiation. <clears throat> and in the art of negotiation, obviously, compromise is always necessary. Never painting your opponent into a corner that they can't compromise. <clears throat> and yet what Pharaoh realizes early on, because the way that Mo- Mo- Moses first comes is, he, you know, let us go into the wilderness for three days to offer an offering, we'll come back. <clears throat> he doesn't say we'll come back, but he says we'll go for three days. And every time that he comes back, it's worse. <laughs> In other words, he's asking for more, not less. Mm-hmm. Pharaoh, as a negotiator, as a smart, educated man, immediately knows that that... Moses thinks he has the stronger hand. <laughs> Which he does. <laughs> Which he does. But Pharaoh, Pharaoh refuses to recognize. And so when it says God strengthened his heart, it's the idea that it, that it, it irked him. 
as mm. the narcissistic man that he most likely was, mm -hmm. it irked him that there was no negotiation going on. Right. And and that Moses believed he had the stronger hand. It's true, as you go through this process, and as we read all the way through the portion today, Pharaoh is absolutely clearly understand who he's dealing with. He is not dealing with Moses. He knows that. Right. And so he's purposefully saying no. It's an act of rebellion. <laughs> but it's logical. It's perfectly logical. And this is where we all find ourselves at times. Hopefully not everyone in this room finds themselves to the extent that it can't be undone. But all of us negotiate. Hmm. We rationally negotiate with sin. Mm -hmm. And there is a point where we believe that we have the stronger hand mm -hmm. and that we can repent tomorrow. Right. And what we need to recognize is there is a point that is indetermined by the logical mind that that is no longer true. Right. And your logical mind, you feel no remorse and you can know for sure that you are only at the mercy of God and those who pray for you because there's no hope within you to repent. Right, yeah. It reminds me of the man, um, the Yeshua's parable about the, the man with the barns. And he has this incredible year of produce and agriculture. And he sits there and he leans back in his chair and he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build me bigger barns. I'm going to store all this stuff. And I'm going to take it easy next year. I have been so successful. And God comes to him in a vision in the night and says, You foolish man. Tonight your soul will be required for you. Then what will happen to all of your wealth? And it's that idea, like you're saying, Dad, that, that you can't... In our heads, we live forever. In our heads, we always have tomorrow. You know, a little Annie song, tomorrow, tomorrow. Like, we always have an extra chance. And that's part of how we rationalize with sin. We always believe, I will repent tomorrow, or I'll only do it this one more time, or it's not so bad, so I'm not doing that, you know, whatever the case may be. But, um, as you pointed out, the universe doesn't fit our little tiny brains. And the way that things actually work is not predictable by us. And so you run the risk, and that's why we talk about, um, uh, Judaism teaches that the lowest form of obedience is an obedience out of fear. But that's still obedience. So it's like, at the very least, you know, now is the time to repent because it's scary if you don't. So I got my mom, and actually Ryan first, I think, and then mom, and then my other dad. Well, I was just going to say, uh, going on, how, you know, Egypt's, the way it's presented in Scripture isn't all bad and evil, that there are some good points mm. you had made the... Uh, indication that uh, God calls Egypt his son mm -hmm. well, even though it's looked at as being bondage now there were times when Egypt was a stronghold uh, when, especially when Joseph was in Egypt and also where did the master flee when he was fleeing from mm -hmm. Earth into Egypt and in I Isaiah you see Egyptians um, giving sacrifice to Adonai in the desert shortly mm -hmm. before Yeshua returns on a cloud to Egypt Hmm. Hmm. So, cool. It's interesting to see to see that. Right. There's still hope. That's right. Yeah, it's interesting that there's a midrash on this particular portion. Um, it talks about the locusts wiping out all of the because it says if you read this and we read this a little while ago that they would eat everything. There's no greenery left. And so the midrash like comments on this whole little story and they say that Egypt can be compared to a kingdom or a place that welcomed the son of the king. Um, he was traveling, they welcomed him in, they applauded him, they made him ruler, 
and the king was very happy with this city. Then the city decided they were tired of the son. They deposed him, and they, you know, and they, and they, uh, they threatened him or whatever else. And the king was no longer happy with the city. And the king came and he wiped the city out to save his son. And, uh, and so the, 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 the commentators go on to say that at one point, Hashem refers to this Egypt, it's like the Garden of Eden. Egypt was like the pinnacle. I mean, think about it. Egypt today is in the desert. They're known for the pyramids in the middle of wasteland. But Egypt was like unbelievably awesome as an agricultural center. Um, you think about it in the ancient times, if you had water, that was a huge deal. They got the Nile. It's like a perpetual run of water. God actually goes so far as to say that like he was warning the people of Israel that growing produce in Israel would be harder because they wouldn't have water all the time. Uh, it would come only in the rain as God sent it. So um, he's, he describes Egypt like it was the Garden of Eden. But then, because of Egypt's sin, they mistreating the people of Israel, he comes in and he absolutely levels them. And at some level, they've never really recovered, um, which is a really big deal. Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah, so scary stuff. Mom? I was reading a commentary this week that was kind of commentating on Rambam and Ramban's approach to this. And Rambam takes what I typically take is the as Pharaoh continued to keep going down that path, his heart got harder and harder. And that as he continued to harden himself against what God was saying, what Moses was saying, his heart got so hard that it was unable to agree. But then Ramban took the view, which I hadn't really thought of before, and it was the view that as Pharaoh was surrounded by devastation around things he had not anticipated happening, as he sees plague after plague, that emotionally he can't deal with what he sees happening to his people and to his land, and that what God does is harden his heart to the devastation mm. so that he can rationally make choices and decisions. Mm. Mm. And that so instead of being overcome with the emotion of what's going on, his heart becomes hardened to what's going around to all of those who are affected by it, his family and his country and his people, hmm. so that hmm. he doesn't see the devastation anymore. He's just able to deal with Moses in, what, in the way he sees as a rational approach. Hmm. Rambam is good. Yeah, good. yeah, that good grasp of human condition. The um, uh, it's it's important to remember, like human logic does not. It's oftentimes manipulable. Like I think it's, I think it's easy in our modern society to sort of see logic as a god. That like it, it's it's undeniable. It's you can't beat it. Whatever. But um, I think more often than not, what people fail to realize is that um, unless you know, with very rare, well, really, I'd say no exceptions, um, human beings aren't legitimately, truly, truly, a hundred percent logical. My wife is as close as you can possibly get. But most people, like, they have, they are affected by emotion. They're affected by their experience. They're affected by their knowledge. They might be very logical, but they may not know everything there is to know about the situation. And that's the scary thing. Like you're talking about, like, Pharaoh is arguing what he thinks is a logical position, but we're reading it from the outside going, this is the stupidest thing you could possibly do. It's like, duh, how many plagues? I mean, he walks through ten plagues. I mean, like, I mean, I love the language here. It's just so intimidating. Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, we're going to send locusts, and it's going to be the worst it's ever been. No, 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 no. It's going to be so bad, your grandfather's fathers will have no idea what this is about. It's going to blow people's minds. Nothing like it's been before. It'll never happen like this again. Our kids are going to be telling their kids about this plague. And Pharaoh doesn't go, 
Oh, oh, okay, okay, never mind, never mind. Okay, y'all can leave. Let's just get out of here. I don't want to even touch that. Instead, he's like, okay, well, well, how about you, how about you just, you just take, take your, your elders. That's, that'll be good enough, right? And Moses is like, I'll see you in a few days. Yes, sir? Well, I thought that uh, as I was reflecting on Pharaoh's responses, uh, in chapter 10, verses 7, 16, 24, and 28, he actually walks through the response that I have gotten when I'm trying to share with someone who is a flaming pagan. Okay. Flaming pagan could be... Um, I'll let you come up with your own flaming pagan description. <laughs> Insert flaming pagan. Yeah. So, uh, but... But in, in, in our work environments, many of us have the opportunity to uh, rub shoulders with and hopefully influence those who don't believe as we do. Mm. Uh, and I normally get a response like we see in 10.7, where um, Pharaoh's hearing from his people that Egypt is ruined. Mm -hmm. So, and, and normally I'm talking to someone who's being witnessed to or who's hearing about a better, perhaps, lifestyle mm -hmm. than, than they have at that moment. Mm -hmm. And then I come into the scene in verse 16 um, after I share with them that God has a plan, he's got some instructions, etc., etc. He says, I have sinned against the Lord your God. Well, okay. So he's recognized that he is a sinner. Mm -hmm. And normally you can get somebody there pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And we used to do that at the at the flea market, we you know stand there with a big you know hundred dollar bill and say we've got real money here. We've got big money. Big money. We've got some big money. Just come talk to us and we'll give you money. And we would hold out a crisp twenty dollar bill. Oftentimes, I had to borrow that crisp twenty dollar bill from Mr. Martin in the back. And <laughs> we would give them the good test, and we would we would say, if you pass the good test, we'll hand you this twenty dollar bill. There's no no bait and switch, it's right here, let's walk through the good test. Oh, absolutely, do the good test, sure. Have you ever lied? Yes. Okay, well then we're done. <laughs> we the, you know, the $20 bill away, but we go through the law and show them that they were sinners, and of course that's where Pharaoh is. Mm. In verse 16, he recognizes, I have sinned against the Lord your God. But in verse 24, he gets to a point where you know, I, I see that I need to make a change in my life. You go and serve the Lord. Your little ones can go with you. Only your flocks and your herds remain behind. And I've seen this in, in non-believers. They're, they're like, well, I get it. I get it. But, you know, I'm, 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 in, I'm a guy in love with this guy. Can't I keep that and still, you know, and try and mix? Can we, can we get it to work here? And, of course, when you move beyond that and say, well, that's not what God would accept, in verse 28... You get the, uh, you know, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Get yeah. away from me, yeah. you know. Um, I, don't, I don't want to see you anymore. And that's, I think, the appropriate response to someone who doesn't want to hear the words of the living God. Is they're going to, they should push you away. Because you represent something that is actually dangerous to them. And they recognize that. And then finally, the last one um, the, um, in 11.9, in God says that Pharaoh will not listen to you. And he said that about, about the pagans as well. A lot of times, we're going to bump into people 
uh, you know, the throwing the pearls before swine, etc., etc. Where if you're sharing your faith and, and trying to be the righteous one in the group, they're either going to push you away uh, or they, they're going to want to try and come up with a mix. But either way, they're not going to listen. Well, that was what I was getting to at the beginning here, is that God is not... Um, God's not open for negotiation on what's exactly. true. And it's not because God is mean or because God is stubborn and God is, you know, intolerant or whatever. It's because God is truth. Because God ultimately not only knows but has told us through his word what is true and what is the only way to experience real blessing in life. Sure. And I think that um, the problem is that they, the, as you're saying, people are coming at it kind of like from a Pharaoh perspective and thinking, well, in my head... I can see how I can I can have something that I like that makes my life happy, and I can I also combine that with God, yeah, and uh, and and you really you really can't because God's whole point was to say that no, there's only one way to life, there is only one path. As Yeshua talks about, you know, narrow is the way. In other words, it's like it's not like you have lots of options, and it's like well well I'll I'll I'll, I'll kind of you know step on do they have a bike path i'll just kind of ride along the side of the road and that would be good enough but no it's like there has to be only one answer here and 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 it's again like i said it's not because god's mean but it's because god wants what's best that's That's what's best the only thing that's best is the way that god does it that's it yes sir then i got one in the back i just had a question from joseph what he was saying he pharaoh recognized that he was sinning yes but did he want to continue sinning because he was just asking for forgiveness once? You know, forgive me this once. I mean, uh, I just find that interesting there. It's not like I have repented and I don't plan to do this or... Yeah, I don't think it was a true repentance. Mm-hmm. I think he recognized, wow, I didn't do what you wanted me to do, God, and you're smiting me because of it. I'm feeling the effects of my sin. I'm feeling the consequences. So I I recognize that I've sinned. But he stops there. I've yeah, I've sinned. With, yeah, with him saying, Yeah, just this one hey, just pardon me this one time. Yeah, give me a give me a breather. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These locusts are killing me, man. I just... <laughs> exactly. Yes, sir. Uh, in chapter uh, this is chapter Ten. Uh, this is when uh, talking about the death of the firstborn, and in verse seven of chapter ten, but against all the children of Israel, no dog shall wet its tongue against neither man nor beast, so that you shall know that Adonai will have differentiated between Egypt and Israel. And in the Hebrew, that word "differentiated" that the phrase is "yafle Hashem." Ben Israel, Ben Israel. Yafle, um, which is translated here as differentiated, that verb is only used four times in the entire Torah. Huh, okay. Three times are in the, um, the plague story. Plagues. Yeah. Uh, the first one is um, last week's portion, uh, where um, in chapter 8. Uh, God makes a distinction using the same verb between the land. He said, I'll separate the land of Goshen mm-hmm. from the rest of the land of, of 
Egypt. Mm -hmm. And then in chapter 9, regarding the plague of the... Um, I think it's a rove in Hebrew. Some people translate it as a wild beast. I think that's what Archibald translates it as. Um, I think some people translate it as gnats. <laughs> Whatever, right? It's a lot of noise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he says, I'll, I'll, I'll make a distinction between um, your livestock oh, right. okay, yeah, yeah. And, and the livestock of the Egyptians, because part of that plague was all the livestock would get wiped out. Right, right, right. And he uses that same, the same verb, and then the third one is here in this, in, in, in chapter 10 of this one. What verse is it? Uh, it's 11, it's chapter 11, 7. 10, uh, yeah, 10, 7. Second half of 10, 7. And the fourth uh, instance is actually in Exodus chapter 32, right after the, um, the golden calf incident, ah. where Moshe is, um, is essentially interceding on behalf of the people because God's ready to wipe them out, whatever. And he makes a he makes a statement um, in chapter um, in chapter thirty two where he says um, you, know, if, you know don't don't take us up from here if your presence not going to go with us etc 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 that I and your people this is Moses speaking that I and your people will be made distinct same verb same same verb there from every people on the face of the earth. So there's a there's a really cool midrash that Rob Ginsburg um, brings on this, and he says so the 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 shorish, the root of this verb yafle is pe lamet he pele. Well, right. So pele can be translated as distinct or different, or it's also translated as wonder, because if you think about it, a wonder is distinct. Right. That's why it's a wonder. Right. It's not usual, right? So what you have here is kind of, there's a little bit of a wordplay here because he's saying to Pharaoh, um, if you don't do this, you know, I'm going to do this wonder mm. so that I can make my people distinct. Wondrous. Right. Okay. Mm. So there's kind of this little wordplay here. Um, and of course, Pele... You know, some of you caught the romance there is also a, a, a name that describes um, uh, Mashiach from Isaiah Nine. Uh, yeah. 7 or 11 I think it's 11 um, so uh, what's interesting here is, is, is Rob Ginsburg kind of takes these four instances and he says the first incident the incident of that verb God is making the land of Goshen distinct from the rest of the land. In other words, the land that belongs to his people, mm -hmm. God makes distinct among all other land on the face of the planet. Hmm. Okay. Right? So obviously the connotation there being that ultimately the land of Israel, God makes distinct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. The second incident, he's, he's, he's making a distinction between... Uh, the livestock of Egypt and the livestock of of um, the Jews of, of, of Israel, which um, is understood as a distinction between possessions, right? So the possessions of my people are going to be distinct mm -hmm. from the possessions of all other nations. Mm -hmm. And of course, Rob Ginsburg, being a Kabbalist, you know, he 
he he kind of goes down. He shows how possessions in Kabbalistic thought um, is um, synonymous with da'at knowledge. What's the unique knowledge that his people have been given? The Torah, the Torah mm, right? Okay. So he kind of makes a connection that the Torah will be distinct. You know, the way the way of life that I've given to my people will be made distinct from the way the, the way every other nation lives. Right? And then ultimately, he says he says here, um, you know, that the children of Israel, the people themselves, will be made distinct from Egypt, right? Because your firstborn are going to die, their firstborn are not. Right? Mm-hmm. So I'm now making a distinction between the people themselves. And so you have here in the plagues God making, you know, by, by performing a wonder, he makes, his pe- he makes the land, the way of life, the Torah, and the people distinct from Egypt. Egypt obviously being synonymous with the rest of the nations. And then in in chapter 33, where we ha- where we have him interceding, and Moses says, "You know, don't take us out of here unless you're going to go with us, so that w- that I and your people will be like it's, it's a future tense. It's the only time the verb is used future tense. And so the Drash interprets that to say that not only did God make that distinction this in this one particular historical event, but He is making that distinction and will forever make that dis- distinction mm-hmm. all through history and forevermore. Mm-hmm. That His His land, His Torah, His people will forever be unique and distinct, um, and they will be a wonder, as it were, mm-hmm. among nations. Cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, very cool. He gets into some of the gematria stuff too, but that was I see another little hand over here. Yes, sir. Um, so does Pharaoh believe in God? Because it says here in my Bible that Moses and Aaron were returning to Pharaoh, and he said to them, "Go and serve Hashem." Pharaoh is an interesting question. person. Good question. Pharaoh is one of those people who. Um, <laughs> Who has kind of like lots of gods in his mind? He doesn't. He does. He he thinks that the Israel's God apparently is God too, because he can do all sorts of miracles and big things. But see, the thing is, that's part of what um, we're talking about with your dad. Problem is that oftentimes people try to mix stuff, you know. And today you'll run into people like that too. People who are like, well, you can have your truth. I will have my truth. You can have your God. I will have another God or whatever. I don't have a God. I have a God somewhere. Um, and they, uh, the point <laughs> I got, yes, um, it comes in your, in the app now. Uh, the point is that the um, Pharaoh probably did think that that the God of Israel was a God, but that's not really the answer, right? Because he's the the God. He's the only was only one, and so Pharaoh's problem really was that he didn't recognize God as the only God. So I think that when you when you look at this passage, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. You can't mix this. You can't pretend halfway, and somehow that be okay. Because by not believing that God was the God, that meant that he had options. He didn't have to obey because there's lots of gods, but there's not really lots of gods. Pharaoh was lying to himself. So because of that, um, Pharaoh doesn't see the truth because he doesn't realize there's only one, and everything that that God, the God, says is true. That's a very good question. Um, One of the things I think that as we... I think it's really cool to have the young people make comments because this this parsha highlights children in three places. And um, one of the first places it brings it up 
uh, is with, it actually on the I'm on the negative side with Pharaoh. Um, and I want to say it may have been first fruits of Zion, but it may not have been. So forgive me for not remembering my source here. But um, I heard one time a kind of a teaching that kind of highlighted Pharaoh's approach is very similar to kind of what the world likes to do. They want to steal your kids, and that's kind of what Pharaoh does. Because Pharaoh says, "Okay, okay, okay, you guys can leave, but your kids need to stay behind." And um, and I feel like what? Sundays. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, it takes a village, right? You know, it takes an Egyptian village to raise your child. Um, the point is that yeah, the uh, that's true. It goes on both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, unfortunately, because the point that Pharaoh tries to do is he tries to, he tries to keep the kids back. The kids were gonna, according to the the commentators in your art in the art scroll um, Kamash, he's trying to like ransom the children. He's trying to make a deal like, well, if you leave, then you want your kids back, so you'll come back to get them. And in a way, um, that's kind of what the world is doing in general. But the world is so much more insidious because the the world's not necessarily trying to get you to come back for your kids, because the world. And I say the world is a euphemism. But really, at some level, it's this, the dark forces in the world. They recognize that. They recognize that if you want to take over the world, you reach out to the kids, the next generation, because this generation has experience. They have knowledge. They have training. They have whatever. But the next generation isn't formed yet. The next generation isn't finished thinking. So what did what have liberals throughout the centuries done? Government they took over the education. They they um, they trained people in those types of things. And really, at the, at the end of the day, I think that's one reason why it's so important to be careful with your kids, the influences they have, the people they talk to, the things that they watch in movies or listen to in music or read in books or whatever the case may be, because the mind is vulnerable at any age, but especially when you're young. I'm just going to say right now that um, I'm still not the smartest guy in the world, but when I was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was definitely not. So it's like you go through, like, stretches in your life where you look back on yourself years later and you go, man, I was an idiot. What was I thinking? And, 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 but the point that I'm trying to get at is that, like, there's vulnerable times. There's those times. And I think that's what Pharaoh sort of sees here as a vulnerability. I mean, at some level, whether he meant it this way or not, there's a vulnerability. He is wanting to claim their children because if you claim the children, you will claim the the history. That's the end. Once you get the kids, there are no more. That is the future. That is everything. And, and it's only one generation. And only one generation. And that's one reason why, like Hashem, throughout the scripture, we get to the end of this parasha, he brings up your kids twice. The first one is when the um, the son, the wicked son, comes, and this is, we're going to flip ahead a little bit, but we'll go back. Don't worry, those of you who want to key in on this. <laughs> um, don't get too excited, those of you who want to end early. Um, uh, ignoring that comment. Um, in Towards the end of the parsha, and I'm, I'm having trouble remembering exactly where it is right now. It's uh, with the wicked son. Where is that one? <laughs> That's what you think. I just, you know, I hold back. Right, so it's going to be before then. Uh, oh, here it is. Uh, it's in chapter 12. Um, this is chapter 12, verse 26. And it shall be when your children say to you, what is this service to you? Now, the sages key in on this phraseology, and they find it very interesting. And I, 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 One of the things I love about the sages that I really appreciate is that they look at all the nuance. They want to know... What tense is this word used in? What is it plural? Is it you know? What's the word? How's it spelled? You know everything, right? And on this one, they key on on the the, the son says to the father, "What is the service to you?" In other words, 
It's not my not to faith. Us. Not my religion. What does this mean in general? It's what is this to you? And of course, the, the, the response, you're, you're supposed to respond to your children, to teach your children. The response is, you shall say, it is a Pesach feast offering to Adonai who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but he saved our households. And what, they, what the, the commentators in uh, the Haggadah, if you read through the Pesach story, um, they, they key in on that point and they say, your response to the wicked son is you treat them the way they want to be treated. They say, what is this thing to you saying, it's not my faith, I don't believe in that. So you respond by saying, God saved our households. But if you had been there, God would not have saved you. In other words, point is saying, you want to be part of the people of Israel, you get the protection of God. If you don't want to be part of the people of God, then you're on the other side. It's not, again, we get, there's, no, there's, no, uh, there's no negotiation here. There's no games. You can't pretend like, well, I was born in a Jewish family, or I was born to believing parents. That's good enough, and I can do whatever I want, and God will just have to love me anyway, because that's who God is. No, that's not who God is. <laughs> you, you as, an, as, a, as an independent being, always have the opportunity to choose. And in this case, the wicked son chooses very poorly. Um, so I, on the flip side of that, what's, what I love about the scripture, though, is that God understands that each person has like their own capacity. Not everybody is made the same. And so there's not only the wicked son in this parsha, there's also the, the ignorant, the, the unknowing son. Um, and it's towards the end, uh, at the very, at, well, it's uh, the passage that Gregory got a chance to read, the Moftir, at the very end of the, of the portion, chapter 13, uh, verse 14. And it shall be when your son will ask you at some future time, what is this? You know, it's like, well, I don't get it. <laughs> I'm totally confused. You're giving, you're doing, you're offering the firstborn of the animals and you're giving God, you know, money for me. I don't understand. And the kid goes, what is this? And so the, scripture, the, the sages are kind of like, this is the kid who doesn't even really know. Like, how do I answer this? What do I ask for? And so he, he responds by saying, uh, with a strong hand, and I removed us from Egypt from the house of bondage. And it happened when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to send us out. That Adonai killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of man to the firstborn of beast. Therefore I offer to Adonai all male first issue of the womb, and I shall redeem all the firstborn of my sons. And there shall be a sign upon your arm and an ornament between your eyes, for with a strong hand Adonai removed us from Egypt. What's cool is that end of pa the passage there is what, um, if you do the traditional blessings when you wrap tefillin, that is the passage you read. It's one of three passages associated with tefillin that you will read throughout the... Um, uh, with the, uh, as part of the process of it. So it's like the, the son who doesn't really even know what question to ask, what is this? He gets an answer that every man is good to remember. And that's one thing that the, that the sages key in on the Haggadah. They say that um, uh, I think it was, uh, like these super elite rabbis, like they know the stuff so well. And they say, every year we read the story of Pesach. Every year, all night long, we talk about Pesach. Because no matter how much you think you know, you can always learn from the beginning. You can always learn from the stuff that's the basics. And, um, and so it's really cool, like you're going back to this whole concept. The evil, the world wants to steal your kids from you, but Hashem is responding, you know, not responding, he is the initiator. He's the one who orchestrated all this. And he's saying, no, 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 you fight for your kids. You, you know, you rebuke your wicked son if necessary. Bizrat Hashem, with God's help, they'll repent. With the son who doesn't even know what to say, you teach them. Because you believe we are all about trying to reach that next generation. Um, so I love the fact that throughout this, this whole parsha and throughout the scriptures, really, is emphasis on teaching your children, raising a godly generation. Um, it's really, really, really important to God. I think Pete, no, Lori was next, and then Pete. Um, with regard to the teaching the children thing, 
I've heard an election speak on from the Breslov people, and he was talking about, I did have one yesterday? I don't know. Oh. It's scripture passages that reference to fill in inside the box. So right. to fill in being the, the head box and the arm box that you which means if you the four portions. Which means if yeah, you cut yeah, four, open yeah. the box to see what's in the box you find really, out that you shouldn't put this stuff in the box. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. Only do that if you really know what you're doing. Don't do that. That's right. But that was a question um you say you asked me what's the answer? Well Lots of different things. Um, but one of the answers I remember, and Taylor has to correct me here if I'm this right, but was um, this verse about teaching these things diligently to your children. Um, actually, it's, it's to the two, but they put them together. Um, from the from the Shema, like from the Ahakta, mm -hmm. you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these things, man um, will be on your heart. You should teach them diligently to your children. Like that's one of the verses there. Let's combine it the next one. And I just think that's really cool because, as we've mentioned, you know, all throughout the scriptures, like, Hashem really cares for the kids. And those, like, the righteous men in, in the generations, like, they really care for the kids. Like, Joseph really cared for the kids. Mm -hmm. Jacob, he said, you know, Esau, you go on ahead. I'm going to stay back with the kids so they can't go too fast, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that that's really, mm -hmm. really cool. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think children are extremely important. And it is, uh, it's important to God. Mm -hmm. Um Going back to the fill-in thing, there's a cool, um, uh, if you, if you, uh, there's certain prayers that you can pray, one of them being in the, um, the Musaf, talks about the idea of, like, um, the glory of, uh, of my tefillin is upon Hashem, and the glory of his tefillin is upon me. It's almost like this idea, like, when you put on the tefillin as a man, and you're binding God's word literally to your arm and to your forehead, then you are, in effect, you're doing, as it were, what God is doing, you know, allegorically or however that works. We'll, I'll leave that up to the mystics to explain. Mm -hmm. The point being that in doing what God is doing, then you are like uniting, you're connecting with Hashem in a very powerful way. So I've got Peter, Micah, I've got Mr. Villamore in the back, and maybe somebody else, and then Greg as well. So start with Pete, and we'll move around and come back I'm, around again. I'm to fill in you, bro. Side note, uh, uh, Lord's was... I know the main passages in, in Hashem's Tefillin are a lot of stuff like um, about Israel. Up volume. Oh, that was yours. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, it's just just like um, who is nation Israel, one nation on earth, and stuff like that. And Hashem will never forsake Israel. That's all in his 
film just as a side note. Then, so the four sons in the Haggadah uh, apparently are all Abraham's sons. Ah, okay. He has four sons, kind of, and they correspond. So he has, um, so it's a, well, the four types of sons are the wise son, the uh, simple son, the son who doesn't know how to ask, and the evil son. Right, right. And so the wise son is Yitzhak. Right. Because the Proverbs say a wise son makes his father rejoice. Yitzhak means he will laugh. Oh, okay. So uh, it's Yitzhak. And then the simple son is Jacob, Yaakov, because it says Yaakov is Ishtam. We translate as a perfect man, but it means a simple man. Okay. So he's the simple son. And then um, uh, Esau is obviously the wicked son. Uh <laughs> And uh, Ishmael is the uh, son who doesn't know how to ask. He says any Muslims in the group, sorry. Yeah, so, and it's because of like his repentance thing at the end, where he repents, he doesn't know, he doesn't know what he's repenting for. He's ah. just repentant. So they teach the son who doesn't know how to ask. Anyway, so four sons. That's cool. Sons of uh, Abraham. Who That's knew? very cool. I like that. That's very nice. Sons and grandsons. And in fact, Shacharit, I don't know the Hebrew words though, but Shacharit is an acronym. Right. Four types of sons, and Jacarid is the huh. prayer service at Abraham Institute. Right, cool, very nice, very nice. Yes, the um, yeah, the wicked son Esau is very interesting because, um, somewhat like this, this wicked son in, in Exodus is not necessarily like he's not a he's not you're not your typical rebel, because there are different types of wicked people. There are some who are just um, intentionally ignorant um, to some degree, and they don't really want to hear and they don't want to be a part of it. That's one side. But but like Esau, this wicked son, he kind of wants to, he wants to be involved at some level. Um, this wicked son wants to kind of quarrel to a certain degree. He wants to he wants to argue, as it were, with with the father. Um, Esau was even more manipulative. He was even nastier because he would hide his evilness. He would talk about the scriptures. He would talk about you know how much so should I tithe from from. The, the grain that I find in the field, like, is that necessary? What about the salt? Do I need to tie that too? And, like, he'd ask, like, these really deep questions. And, of course, then, you know, Yitzhak, who was, um, you know, a righteous man, he assumed the best. He thought his son was really into the faith. And, of course, in the behind his back, Esau is sleeping with people, raping people, killing people. You know, Esau is evil, but he put on a guise of righteousness, which is why they, they compare him to a pig, which puts out his cloven hoofs and says, look, I'm kosher. But then on the inside, where he's chewing his cud, you find out he's not. So, um, scary stuff there, the faking it. I got... What a pig. Say what? It's kind of like fear in a sort of a way. That old lying thing. It's okay to pretend that you're friends. It's yeah, 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 yeah. The, the Islamic uh, approach where you can yeah, kind of fake uh, it out. Here, I got. Hang on just a second, Ryan. I got Micah next. Micah. Something that I just remembered about this man named Ray Bangalore when he was teaching us about these plagues. He said that each plague was against a god. Right. Yes, because the Egyptians had all their idols and they had their own little gods. Um, Was it 
he got a war. <coughs> so he just opened this red sea to do the last card. Okay. The Egyptians believed him. Right, because they had all their little fake gods, and God proved throughout the course of this that, that they really weren't that, that real. <laughs> Not at all. Um, so I got Ryan and then Greg, so it's thank you for your patience. To encourage Micah that he has demonstrated the righteous way to quote a sage. That's true. He gave the name. name. It's very nice. Good job, Micah. Just save the world. Yeah, that's true. We will we will wake up tomorrow because of Micah. The terrorist sniper just missed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Amen. Yes, mentioning the name of where you find things. Good, good job, Micah. Yes, sir, Ryan. I was just going to say the discussion about Esau. You know, outwardly maybe appearing to be kosher, but inwardly not, uh, brings me back to a statement Shaul makes: uh, having a form of godliness but denying the power. Right. Of mm. Yeah. Yeah, it can, it's a scary place to be. I can't, at some level, I mean, it's not really where Pharaoh is, but it kind of reminds me of that. He kind of, like, it's this, again, it's this halfway thing. He kind of wants to pretend, but not. And uh, you really can't fool God, because he right. sees all the way through to the heart. Um, he knows what's really going on. Gregory. And that is, like, the scariest kind of idolatry, the one that is kind of hidden. But Ronban brings up this interesting point about how there's just like, it's only a few generations after creation that the germ of idolatry was introduced mm. and how he, he goes through several forms of idolatry just saying like, oh, no, there is no God. And then also, oh, well, yeah, there is a God, but he's not involved in everyday life and, mm-hmm. and just all the various beliefs that someone could have. And his point is the exodus from Egypt absolutely conclusively refutes every single one mm-hmm. of the, the false notions about God, mm-hmm. which is cool because it's helpful to remember this. And another reason why we mention it so often, we mention it on Shabbat, we mention it for Pesach, and just throughout our prayers we always are mentioning the exodus from Egypt because nowadays it might not be as explicit as it once was. Now it takes so many different forms, and we're especially seeing that with our children just how subtle things can be and how it influences them. We read, we listened to a really interesting book by Dr. James Dobson called Children at Risk. And it was just all about how, like, yeah, idolatry used to be, like, we, we used to know exactly what it was back in the day. It was very black and white. But now it is so gray. And there's so many things that we th- might think are safe that aren't at all. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even when I was little, just, like, playing something as innocent as sports, you know, that's when I got introduced to, like, profanity and, like, all mm-hmm. sorts of things that you would have never thought, like, oh, this is a safe place for my child to be. Right. But it just, it's, we always have to be on guard and remembering the exodus from Egypt. And even Disneyland has measles. That could be the least of your problems, potentially, depending on what you're getting into there. Exactly right. um, go on a you know, certain pride day or something. Um, yes, no, you, you got a really good point there. And I think that this, the exodus, one of the things, uh, I see the back there. And one of the things about the exodus, and we've talked about this before, um, and I hope that you're really getting that feeling as we get to these these last three plagues, which are unprecedented. I mean, they're all unprecedented, but these last three plagues are even almost hard to understand. I mean, you think about like the next one after the locust is darkness. It's darkness so thick. Now you don't think of darkness as being thick. Like, what is that? But like the sages, the commentary here um, says the idea is like it's almost like like a fog or something. It got so thick to the point that the Egyptians couldn't move. Like, if you were standing, you couldn't sit because you just can't move. <laughs> and, like, so the idea being that, like, it's, 
God is in charge of everything. He holds every little... And when you have that reality, it's like you're saying, Greg, it's like you can't argue that God's the, the big clockmaker. He just kind of set the universe in motion and then just kind of takes his hands off. It's like, no, no, no. God intentionally inputted himself into the universe here, acted on behalf of a people that he had chosen, an individual group of people that he had called his own, and he did miracles that can't be explained. I mean, the Egyptians freak out at the end of the death of the plague of the firstborn because it was totally supernatural. Every house somebody died, but nobody went in or out of the doors. I mean, can, I mean, you can't even really fathom the kind of terror and horror that comes with that. It's like you just woke up and people died. I mean, we're talking all ages, doesn't matter. And it's like that's the that is the ultimate power of God who has the power of life and death as well. And so... Um, when you think about that, it's one reason why I mentioned that the, the rabbi, the um, assistant that I spoke to one time about this, he emphasized the Exodus story because this is when we realized, this is when we learned that God cares about the affairs of men. God intervened in human history on behalf of the people. It's a huge deal. This is an introduction, as it were, to the powerful, awesome God that we serve. You got my dad and Colby and then Johnny. On the uh, people. Well, we're ready, are we ready to move into the Passover? We can, yeah, we're going to, we're going to keep moving. I think that I, I was struck this year by the number of times that Passover is, is, is referenced in this passage because it's not just like he gives instructions. He gives instructions, then he repeats the instructions, and then he repeats the instructions again. Uh, and the emphasis that we find in in Judaism on Passover as our as our ever as our baseline faith, it is it is the baseline. This is where we start. We start with Passover as understanding who we are as a people and who God is and what he's done for us. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's really ironic that, that the Gospels key into the, and Paul key into this very same point, but in a way that is maybe very unexpected, unless you come from a Christian background, unless you come from a Christian theology, you wouldn't necessarily relate because the, 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 the death of the firstborn and the Passover offering itself, anybody that studies the Torah in Leviticus, we learn that the Passover is not about a sin. It's not a sin mm -hmm. offering. It's a peace offering of sorts. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the Passover story, it's not a sin offering. Mm. God doesn't say, hey, look, I'm going to forgive you all of your sin, and I'm going to take you out of Egypt. Mm, okay. but, the, but this is the thing that I find is so ironic, and as the sages do, when they read the scriptures, and they find the, the ironies and the, and the little things out of place, they key into it. And the gospel writers did exactly the same thing. They said the Passover is the emphasis of it, everything that that we know, as Jews believe, it's the baseline, it's where we start, and yet, why do they, you know, why is it always repeated? Okay, so he freed us, and this is how he freed us. But the other plagues are not, the other plagues are not the ones celebrated. Right. This is the one that's celebrated. Right. And, and the tying it to a messianic redeemer, and the tying it to, as Christianity rightly has done, tying it to a sin redemption, that's like, that's almost incomprehensible reading the story. Right. And that's where the depth and the, and the insights of the epistle to the Hebrews is so valuable because we learn things about the Passover story that are only hinted at. Right. And about the offerings that are only hinted at. We have a glimpse behind the curtain in ways that we are never given when we actually just read this passage. But our interest is peaked. That's what I love about this this portion is our interest is really deep with this because it's 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 a straightforward story, but it has really odd things in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
It does. And it's I think a miracle. This passage, uh, talking about, going back to like Mashiach, Yeshua, uh, we see the idea of like redemption as emphasized so intensely in this in this uh, throughout this portion and the and the the idea that like the, la- the latter redemption will be like the first one god even talks about that in the prophets he says that when i redeem you later from the nations at the end of time it will not be like this one in that it will not be one of haste and rush but you will basically just kind of stride out there because i'm going to totally level your enemies and you won't have to flee and i'll forgive your sins wait that was not the issue in 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 exodus right but he's, yet the prophets say it has to, it's tied to sin right because it's layers. Because that's because see the, the sages kind of get that here too with with the, the coming out of Egypt. Egypt Mitzrayim is actually in more of a kabbalistic mystical thought is entirely spiritual. Like they really focused on the idea. They even translate what is Mitzrayim talking about. What does it mean? They talk about maybe constraining. And so the idea is it's all about like constraining your soul and like preventing you from serving Hashem. So they see Mitzrayim as like the embodiment of sin. of sin and of the evil world that you live in that prevents you from connecting with Hashem. So when they when Hashem saves them from Mitzrayim, it's not just the idea that he saves them from physical slavery, but it is a spiritual slavery that he's saving them from. So that's where the gospel writers are keying in on that. And I also think it's funny that it's interesting that the gospel writers tying in with with, with this, and that what is the, the primary event of the Pesach night is the death of the firstborn. And of course, Yeshua, as dying on our behalf, is God's son as well, as it were. So we get that imagery there, kind of tying it all in, um, which I like. As you pointed out, it's not a, it's not a, it's not just a Christian concept. It's like the like the sages love to do this. They love to find the little pieces. So when the gospel writers are pulling these little pieces, it almost seemed kind of out of place and out of context. That's a totally Jewish way of interpreting things. Proof, proof of the veracity of the apostolic scriptures is in fact. The oddities pull things out, and only people who—I shouldn't say only people—but especially people who study classic Jewish literature can see that these people are thinking and writing like Jews. Right. Yeah. Which is even more miraculous because the Christians held it for centuries and didn't think to change that. So thank goodness they didn't know. Um, Colby, and then I've got Johnny, Pete, Greg. So we got this whole this, oh oh, and we got oh we got a huge circle. We both talk at once. Yeah, we'll we'll just let we'll let the spirit translate. Um, okay, go ahead, Colby. I think it's neat to kind of like stretch our minds a little bit. You know, I think recently we talked, um, I spoke with someone just kind of talking about like God creating time. 
and you kind of get that idea through the scriptures that God is like the creator of even that. And it's like when you start to really think about it, it's like the, the scripture, the, the Ju- Judaism teaches that Hashem Echad means there's nothing besides God. In other words, God doesn't just like, he doesn't just manage everything. It's like everything that exists, everything that exists, even the things that don't exist, as it were, the gaps, as it were, it's like all there because Hashem allows it to be there. Yeah, he's the he's it. There's nothing else. Johnny and then Pete. So, also Mr. on okay. the, uh, the last two plagues, uh, idea of the darkness one. Uh, I heard a, a cool midrash that that the um, that it was during those three days of darkness that Hashem was actually giving the Egyptians the opportunity to repent and, mm. to, and to find love for Hashem and to come to a place of okay, we need to bless Israel and Israel's God. Um, and as far as the 10th plague is concerned, um, the sages picked up on this whole concept of why a lamb's blood? And, you know, of course there's the perfect irony that Egypt who worshipped animals, you know, like, and there's this, this little fuzzy bleeding creature who is just like, they're doing what with our gods? Yeah. Well, they <laughs> <laughs> may offend you. Not politically correct. Exactly. Well, the sages picked up on this, and they say that it was not actually that the lamb's blood was efficacious in causing the destroyer or the the spirit of death to pass over them. That it was actually the blood of Isaac. Oh, so that's they, cool. So they picked up on this as a messianic implication, and we can we we also see it as well in that. Okay, this was the blood of the firstborn and whom you take take your son your firstborn whom you love your right. only son right. and so this is a very much a messianic picture as well that's cool that's yeah. cool I like that very cool they also say going back to the beginning of our talk we talked about circumcision briefly another interpretation on the blood um, in Ezekiel it says that I have redeemed you with bloods plural and the the, the sages kind of go well, that's that's kind of weird because I thought there was just the the blood of the lamb. Why, why is it pluralized? And they say that there's two acts involving blood that the children of Israel did that um, merited as it's well, where the redemption. One of them is, of course, the, the lamb. But you're, but you're right. They weren't keying on it as a physical animal, like the blood of the lamb specifically is redemptive. But they were keying on the action. Because as you pointed out, it's the, it's the idol of, of Egypt. So for the children of Israel to do this meant that they had to really put themselves out there and at risk yeah. from the people around them to go and kill the god of the society around them and then paste the blood all over their doorposts. I mean, it's like, whoa, that's pretty intense. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, I'm just to put it into an analogy you might think of today, it's like as if you took, you know, uh, a you burned the Koran and you put it into paint and then painted your walls with it. Right, exactly, something like that. But you, know? you did that in Mecca. Right, yeah. yeah, it's like really intense, totally scary. Um, and yet the children of Israel, because they feared God and not man, they did exactly what God what God told them to do with the with the lamb's blood. And so he honored them by protecting them. The other thing they say is that this blood of circumcision is the second blood, because there's bloods, plural. So the blood of circumcision, which is one of the few commandments that the, that the people of Israel were kind of still clinging to most of the time um, uh, throughout their lifetime in Egypt, their experience in Egypt. And so they highlight that one as well as being important. And here, of course, in order to have the Passover, you had to be circumcised. So it's like, at least at this point, they all were. So it's like the bloods, plural, saying that they kept God's, um, they got, kept God's commandments 
the things that he had given to, to Abraham, and they also were keeping um, God's instruction here at the peril of their own, of their own selves. Um, they're really keying in on those two points. So, let's see, who's got, who, I've got a whole long line of people. I think Pete, and then we got some Martin boys, and then we've got Mr. Upham. We've got two Gregs. It gets confusing here. Whose turn is it? I think it's you. Okay, on the darkest plague, uh, there, there's a verse in Joshua. Joshua 1.8 that said, Joshua. It's a really a great, it's a great uh, book. Joshua 1.8 says, um, this Torah scroll will not be removed from your mouth. Mm-hmm. But the not will be removed is Yamush. Okay. And then we have this verse in Exodus that says that the darkness will be pal- palpable, right. tangible, which is uh, like Vayamesh. And so they, they draw a significance to this. You could read the Joshua verse, this Torah scroll will not become palpable or corporeal in your mouth. And the idea is that if you are considering the Torah like you consider other secular wisdom, like a body of knowledge, something that takes up space, Mm. then it will become darkness and obscure to you. Mm. You have to focus in that Torah is a spiritual concept. Mm-hmm. Because as long as Torah takes up space, then it, it will you're, you have a finite mind. Mm-hmm. And so you won't be able to contain it mm-hmm. all. You'll forget something. Mm-hmm. But as long as Torah is spiritual, it doesn't matter. You, you, it's more of an instrument to uh, draw close to Hashem. Absolutely. Rather than a thing you study that you could forget. Right, right, right. It's an experience as opposed to like a... Um, uh, an academy intellectual study. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very cool. I already it, forgot what you said, and I benefited greatly from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like the difference between trying to download all of the songs onto your iPhone or using the cloud. Mm. <laughs> That's a pretty good. Or streaming. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, uh, Micah. <laughs> <laughs> The world has been saved yet another day. Good job, Micah. Thank you, Micah. Twice in the same day. That's amazing. No, but I think we we say that kind of not. We're laughing because it's it's a beautiful thing because it's true. I think that God blesses even every action, no matter uh, how big or how small or who it's from. Um, Pete sent out a little teaching to to me yesterday, a little drosh on like the finer points, uh, as they described it, of each person. That every person has something. Um, a connection with Hashem that they have that's like special and unique to them, and so it might be a very small mitzvah that other people wouldn't even really like key in on, but that gives you value to teach other people, and also more importantly, it gives everyone around you value to learn from. So you can learn from everyone at some level in finding that little spark of godliness that's within them, as it were. Um, of course, you know you might have to sift through some rubble to get to it, but the point is that it's there. And so he was encouraging all of us as, as, as people of God, since we all have that, to share. Like, we shouldn't be afraid and think, well, I have nothing to offer because I have something. So, um, yes, no matter how small the mitzvah is, even if it's as simple as simply quoting somebody and using their name, it's a good thing. Yes, Joshua? 
if on the plague of the death of the firstborn, I'm sure plenty of the servants of Pharaoh had firstborn. So, and they really, really, they really, really wanted Pharaoh to let the people go. And when, and they see that whenever Moshe says that something, a plague is going to happen, it's happened. So when they hear about the plague of the firstborn, why do they not, when they see that the Israelites have not had any problems with these plagues, why do they not go to the Israelites and say, is there something that we can do to stop the plague ourselves? They did. That's why a mixed multitude went out with them. They figured it out. At least at the end, and that's the thing is, I think that I think that's the that's the importance about um, when you talk about repentance. Sometimes God's goal is to get people to repent. The goal is not if punishment to make them suffer. The goal is to make is to help them get to a place of godliness. And so I think with what you're describing is, it's a shame that these same Egyptians who would go out with them later didn't repent earlier. If they had repented earlier, they wouldn't have had to suffer as much. But that's always true. I think anytime. What? It's like ourselves. It's like ourselves, yeah. Like the things I do wrong, I suffer consequences for. And then eventually, Baruch Hashem, you you figure it out. You go, okay, that was a mistake, not doing that again. But it's a shame that I can't go back and undo that. Same thing here. The Egyptians, eventually, the light bulb went off for some of them, and they go, oh, wait. Your God is obviously really good God. I want to go with you. You take me to your God. But the problem was they did it a little late. So they had to suffer the consequences. The good news for them is that the ones who did leave do end up with the blessings from there on out. So again, and kind of that's... better late than never. And better late than never. Absolutely. There's always time to repent until you die. So, but Which always repent tomorrow. one day before you die. You never know. Um, I like the, real quick on the thing on the, the, the plague of the firstborn. It says, that, he says also that no destroyer will come into your midst. So what the sages teach is that not only did God himself, as he went out um, laying out all, all of the Egyptian firstborn, not kill the Israelites because of the blood in the doorpost, but God also protected the Israelites from any other kind of spiritual attacker, destroyer, death kind of thing. So it's almost like, they almost describe God in the Midrash as though he was like, a, the best way I can describe it is like a security guard, like standing at the door of the, uh, of the Jewish home and telling the destroyer, got to keep moving on. Can't come in here. And he still does. Yeah, it's very cool. Yes, sir. Well, just to dovetail on that, I think so much so that a dog did not wet its tongue, right? right. In other words, that one of the understandings of that that that, uh, that I've read is if you if you have a dog, then dogs have this you know sense, right? They can sense things, right? And when they sense things, dogs being dogs normally sound off, right? I mean, they start to bark or whatever because. They sense something is there, but while the destroyer was sweeping across the land, that protection you referenced left such a such a peace over the children of Israel that not even the dogs could sense that something was wrong. Right. So anyway, that's not what what I was going to comment on. That's cool. <laughs> that occurred to me when you made that comment. Uh, going back to the concept of Hashem Achad, right, and that nothing exists except Hashem, right? <clears throat> uh, it reminds me of a phrase in the Upstock writings, right? In Him we live, move, and have right. our being, 
Right. Um, but same same idea. And by him all things consist. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But Hazal, you know, it reminded me of Madrash. Hazal, Hazal look at Bereshit, right? And they say, okay, Bereshit 1, we have the beginning of <coughs> time and space, the creation of physical world and time and all that, right? And they say the first word of the beginning of, of physical creation starts with the second letter of the Aleph Bet, right? It starts with Bet, right? Bereshit. Of course. And of course they say, well, why, why would God start you know, the Torah and start the description of creation of time and space with the Bates? And one of the conclusions is because what exists before the bait, only the Aleph. And the Aleph in Hebrew thinking, the letter Aleph is a, a letter that's associated with Hashem. In other mm-hmm. words, before, before Bates, before the beginning, before Bereshit, the only thing that was was Allah. Right. So kind of so in in the way the Torah is actually written. They, yeah, That's of, cool. Uh, the other point that I was going to make um, in terms of tying kind of back to the Passover is this this particular verse has always kind of stood out at me, um, where it says in this is chapter twelve, verse forty one. It was at the end of four hundred and thirty years, and it was on that very day that all the legions of Hashem left the land of Mitzrayim, right? So that phrase, on that very day, or on that self-same day, some, tr- some translations, um, and the, the sages say, what, what is that? What does it mean by that very day, 430 years prior, was um, the covenant between the parts with Abraham when God prophesied to Abraham that his children would go into bondage in a strange land. So, what we learn from that is that on this same day that we're walking out of Egypt, on that first Passover, as it were, that same day, exactly 430 years prior, is when, when, when God cut the covenant with Abraham. So the covenant was cut on Pesach, on the, on the 14th of Nisan, uh, 430 years prior. In great darkness. Wow. Yeah, true. 15. Yeah, yeah, at sundown, right? Yes. So, cool. Uh, anyway, that that's always just amazed me because it just continues to re- reemphasize that everything significant that happens to his people happens on a moed. Great, which makes sense. Great. Yes, very cool. Very very cool. So we're actually getting later. So I have a whole slew of hands. I'm gonna just kind of go like rapid fire machine gun. Nobody not say something that you're planning to say because I know it's gonna be awesome. Greg, you're next. Okay. About eight hands ago, we mentioned <laughs> Yeshua is the firstborn. And right. the, uh, it's Rav Yaakov Kamensky has this whole cool thing about Pidyon Haben, which is the redemption of the firstborn. Which you're, well, actually, you know, yeah, it's okay. Uh, but you've been teaching Isaac just in case he wants to. <laughs> yeah. But so he brings up the fact that at further, what, you're redeeming him from Hashem. So he's like, he's belonging to Hashem. And then you have a, a festival for this particular occurrence. And so the, the question is like, well, why would you celebrate that? Like, you're taking him 
away from his like divine connection to Hashem, you're redeeming him from Hashem. Like, why is it something to celebrate? And the whole purpose of that is because it's the central thing in the Jewish belief, which is we are here to sanctify the mundane activities. Right. And it's just so cool because that's exactly what Yeshua says. He's like, I, I'm here for like the sick people and the poor people and those that can barely help themselves because if he was like consecrated as a priest and could, I mean, he would not be able to go near anyone like that because he is dedicated to Hashem and designated as someone that just can't approach that kind of thing. But he wasn't. He came and was redeemed as a firstborn and followed this this thing where he is like sanctifying all of the mundane and like the uh, lower world. So very cool. Nice. Very cool. Yes, absolutely. It's like that. I like the idea of the, of, um, of the rabbi weeping his death because he would no longer be able to do mitzvot because once this world is over you know you're with Hashem which is beautiful but like Paul Paul talks about I'm torn because I want to go spend eternity with God but at the same time I still got work to do here Colby Johnny Pete I think that Joshua has hand up so we're going to go Johnny Um, to just be clarify on a point was it when we talk about the creation thing, when we said that Hashem was in the Aleph, is it is that a gematria thing? No. no Aleph is associated no with Av, Father. Okay. And he's the Father, right? So Aleph is um, is just a letter that's associated with Hashem. Okay, because it's... What's that? Yeah, because I was thinking if the Aleph is consistent... If the, the numerical value of, hash, of um, Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey is 26. The Aleph cre- is comprised of two Yuds, which is 10, and a Vav, which is 6. So you've also got the 26 there. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And Aleph yeah. is numerically 1. Exactly. If Hashem is the Echad, Echad. 1, then that also... Okay, and then so my other thought was concerning... Um, the just the immense practicality and relevance to not just the Israelites, but to all mankind, as it were, this this whole picture of redemption that plays out because it's all while Egyptians are viewing Hashem's miracles and his wonders, which to them they don't seem like such, <laughs> but it's almost like they don't have any excuse for ignorance. They don't have any excuse to say well, there's this God, and he's doing stuff, and he's making my life miserable and stuff like that, and I'm just going to, well, we'll get all the goody-two-shoes goody or get these, you know, get these people out of town, and I can just continue living the way I want. It's like, you don't have that choice. Once you've seen it, once you've experienced it, and even down to just the, the way of putting the, the lamb's blood on the doorpost, it's like, okay, there is one way to literally live. Mm-hmm. and And it's... It's just that fear and love of Hashem, right, and yeah. the one and only God. So it's it's not that it's just for this particular people, because anyone who had the blood on their doorpost would have been spared. True. Mm, true. And so, it, it, to me, it's just like if you had witnessed these things and you still didn't just get it, something's seriously wrong with you. And serious, and which is even, why we wanted them in the desert for four years. Exactly. So, these, you know, how spiritually dead I think that society is today, it's still that applicable. It, it just 
the realization that, okay, there are wonders and miracles all around us, and they have been, and that, gosh, no matter what's going on around me, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, there is one God, and I need to trust in him. And I think that's one reason why Hebrews 6, going, we mentioned that earlier, is such a huge deal when someone experiences a spiritual experience with God. It's been part of the community of God, part of the fellowship of God, has has connected with God, and then walks away from it by choice. Good luck with that. Big deal, and very scary. Hebrews 6 describes those types of people as they don't come back. Irredeemable. Because they've, cause that's the line. It's like we're talking about Pharaoh. It's like they crossed that line. Now, granted, we, as, we, first gate. as we've always said, as we've always said, um, you don't know where the line is. So, I mean, my ad- ad- advocation to anyone at any time who is thinking they should repent is definitely do it. But, like, the point is trying to get at is to say that anyone who's thinking, I don't need to repent, definitely repent. Because you, there is that line, that point that you cross where it's like you don't come back from that anymore. And that's a really scary place to be. Peter. Okay, two small things. One is about Pesach. Pesach is a contraction of the word Pesach, which means a mouth that speaks. Okay. And Mitzrayim, which is where we were redeemed from, is like Mitzah Garon, the narrowness of the neck. Okay. And so it's like how you get out of the narrowness of the neck through a mouth that speaks. Right. And so on a large level, that's... How we bring the redemption, that final redemption from that, that exile is through holy words. Okay. But then on a personal level, how do you get out of your own personal terrain? Through uh, vocalizing right. your your longings for Hashem. Right. And anything you lack, if you vocalize it, Hashem will redeem you from the Okay. Very cool. That, that was the first thing. And then the second thing was on Greg's point about this the sun and the redeeming of the sun. And how that kind of ties into the whole purpose of all Judaism, and uh, and that's right in the passage about the donkey. Right. It's my favorite passage uh, in this week's portion is that you have to the donkey is mentioned specifically, <laughs> like all the other animals. That's fine, but the donkey, if you don't redeem it, you have to axe the back of its neck. And um, the sages key in on the, the back of the neck. So the back of the neck, nape of the neck, is haoref. If you rearrange the letters, it's Pharaoh. Oh, okay. And Pharaoh represents all of evil. Well, first of all, Pharaoh is a donkey because he represents, like, stubbornness. Okay. But Pharaoh represents, like, the whole gamut of evil, the evil side, Mitzrayim versus Israel kind of thing. Right, right, So the interesting thing is part of the very core belief of Judaism is you only have two options when faced with Pharaoh. You either redeem it, or you axe the back of its neck. <laughs> so when you have evil, you either have to smash it, or you have to turn it into good. Wow. By redeeming it. And that's it. That's, wow. cool. that's yeah, cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, it kind of goes back to the whole idea of, like, they teach that Yitzhak was capable of taking the desires that, that, in, that are the impetus behind the Yitzhak Harad, those fleshly desires, and directing them towards the service of Hashem. So, like, when, like for us, just a small piece of this, and this is obviously not on the level of Yitzhak because he was awesome, but a small piece of this is things like blessing God before you eat and after. It's like you take that mundane action of eating and a desire you have to eat, and you're, you're turning it to, to the service of Hashem. You know, it's just like one small piece of that. But then as you're talking about, too, it's like on the flip side, if you're just going to engorge yourself and act gluttonous during the week, then you're going to end up, um, that's, that's the evil. So you've got to, like, 
the axe, the, the axe in the back of his neck. That's very cool. I like that. Joshua and then Mr. Villamore, and then I think we'll kind of wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. If Adonai required the last plague to have a sign, the sign of the blood on the doorposts, why did he not require a sign for the other plagues? They didn't have to do anything. Really in the darkness, what kind of sign did they need to put? Because they didn't need to do it. Was Jewish. It was hitting. And Jewish was good enough. Yeah. The thing is, if you look, if you look at way that um, that God tends to work, we don't always understand it and all the methods. But the important thing is that on this particular time, this final redemption required action on the part of the people. Um, and I think that the mistake that a lot of people make is they get so used to the first nine plagues, we don't have to do anything, that they don't necessarily realize they need to do something later. And I think that part of the danger um, sometimes, like, I mean, like Yeshua, he and John, the Yochanan Hamakdil, the John the Baptist, they had these conversations with people. They go, oh, no, 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 we're sons of Abraham. We're, we're Jewish, we're whatever. Like, we, we have the background, we have the, pre- the, the pedigree. We don't need to repent. We don't need to, oh, you know, what are you talking about? And they're in, in <laughs> like, this very, very smart and stinging remark comes from John, Yochanan, he goes, God can make sons of Abraham from these rocks. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it doesn't matter, like, your background if you don't repent. Like, ultimately, there's judgment that falls even on them. So as to your point, um, there is blessings for being part of the people of God, the physical people of Israel. Just naturally, you're blessed. For whatever reason. And you can see it. Because there are Jews all over the place who don't even believe in God, and their lives are remarkably successful and blessed. Why? Because they're the people of God. They have blessing in their lives. Those same people might look at it and go, well, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> I got it all. Because I'm Jewish, or because I had good parents, or because whatever. Well, and just to dovetail on that, so there, while there is, so there is some blessing that can accrue to our benefit in the merit of, you know, someone else, right? The moral of that is you cannot... The merit of somebody else does not absolve you from your personal responsibility. Right. Right. Which so so Judaism on on occasion throughout history has been guilty of saying, "Oh well, I've, I've got the merit of the patriarch, so I'm good. I don't need to do anything." Right. And wrong. Right. <laughs> Flip side, Christianity. Well, Yeshua has done everything. I have to do it. I don't have to do anything. Mm. And <laughs> wrong, wrong, right? So you know, it, it's kind of both. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, for ultimate redemption, you're going to have to do something. Um, Mr. Villamore and Lori, and we'll, I think we're about to finish. Oh, I see it. We, we, are, we are definitely past time. It doesn't matter, but just saying. Only God knows what time is. That's true. Anyway, what Peter was saying is he's, uh, about axing the back of the donkey's neck. You see, and, and he teaches us how to treat our animals. And in hence, that's actually wouldn't it be right. Lately, I've been trying to study somewhat how to kosherly kill an animal to be able to eat it. Oh, okay. And even one of the things, it's even simple hesitation when you're slicing right. its neck. It's they consider it no longer kosher because of the hesitation. Right. So in other words, God wants us to repent. He doesn't want us to ask the back of the world. Right, it's not the idea. Is that's not the idea. The idea is repentance. Come, come to sacrifice and turn, do it the right way, 
sometimes we go, you go that way, but that's more difficult. You know, in, in fact, uh, the reason why God didn't direct us straight into Israel was because he said, we will see war and not want it. That's why he led us into the wilderness. So he, so right. he, wants, he wants us to see, as he constantly said, not only did he want Pharaoh to see that he was the guy, but he wanted Israel to see, I am the guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I think that like, to that point, um, ultimately you want to obey God because of love of God. That's the ideal. Yes. But as we note here, with like what Pete was saying with the axe in the back of his neck, it's like on a worst case level, love God or obey God because you fear God. I mean, just obey God. It doesn't matter. Like at the very minimum, got to obey. Lord. Just to Joshua's point real quick, and I was looking in Colossians for where it is. I couldn't find it at the time today, but um, there is there is a, an understanding by the Jews that not everybody left Egypt. Hmm. In fact, there's a significant amount of Jews that didn't leave. They didn't put the blood in the door, and they didn't leave. Oh, wow. That's why they got the animals for the chariot to chase after them. Well, the Egyptians' chariot and animals were killed, but mm -hmm. some of the Jews were spared, and it was those same Jews who blended their animals to chase after <laughs> the Egyptians. Huh. That's interesting. So, so in that sense, like... Four fifths got left behind. That's modest, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, four fifths, yeah. Wow. I mean, so there is there's definitely a benefit to being in children in hand. You know, what benefit there's circumcision much in every way. Right. But there does come there is personal responsibility. Right. And I think that answers Joshua's question as well. Like what separates the last from all the others? Because God will separate his people from the nations, but then his people still have to choose for themselves. Right. It's like a separation within his people in a sense. Remnant. Yeah, remnant. Yeah. Because it also does take their own personal responsibility. The other teaching says that the plague of darkness was partly so that way God could kill all of the wicked Jews and the Egyptians wouldn't see it. So they wouldn't think that God was like, he didn't really care about his people. So like it was an opportunity for God to meet out judgment on his own people in advance of the, of the final plague, um, but not behind, kind of behind closed doors, as it were. Marianne, I'll actually, Gregory first, and then I'll go to you and we'll wrap up. Uh, at the foster table last night, Ooh. Colby gave like a cool little Josh about measure for measure, and that just related to what you were just saying about like justice being served right. to Israel as well as to Egypt, because all of the plagues kind of related in some way to something that they did to Israel. Yeah. But then yeah, like the whole plague of the darkness, like sort of concealing Hashem, like punishing His people too, and it was just a, it was really interesting that this particular portion did encompass a lot of this measure for measure idea as well. Yeah, they said that. The, the, the plague of the um, at the at the, the the final one the, the wiping out of the Egyptian armies at the sea that was this moment of prophecy for the people of Israel because they could see God meeting out measure for measure exact justice that Egyptian as Rabbi Gimpel would say that that Egyptian uh, broke this Israelite's arm so his arm gets broken in the ocean you know it's like it was exact justice for what they had done yeah if you want to get like kind of slightly creeped out and really in awe of Hashem's creativity read the midrash on what the plagues associated with, the different things the Egyptians did badly to the people of Israel. One of the most interesting ones was like the, the beasts. Like they would send the people of Israel to go out and like gather in wild beasts. So God sent a plague of wild beasts on the Egyptians. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of really cool ones. Good point. So yes, thank you. And thank you, Colby Foster, Australian for Shabbat. All right, so then Marianne. Oh, I see what you did. Yeah, this portion last week, there's a scripture that was instrumental in the beginning for me would be because oh let my people go let my people go we've all heard that and 
freedom, you know, yay, that kind of thing. And one day, seriously, I've read it a million times, and I've read it again, and all of a sudden I saw, so that they might serve me. Mm -hmm. So that they might worship me. I think right. it's in some, some translations. And in fact, I think I saw one that said something about festivals or peace, but whatever. And that was when the light bulb went out. It was like, so that I got to do something, there's something right. attached to this freedom. Absolutely. Go right. of, you know, that. Mm -hmm. And it did, in fact, that was one of the beginnings of when I thought, well, what is that? What does God want me to do and to serve him and worship him? That's how we ended up here. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Very cool. All righty. Well, I think we're going to ask my father-in-law here to pray for us. And then if you are interested in doing something with the Gordons, want to go, we don't overwhelm them, talk to Greg or myself. We're going to get a group to go after we're done. Thank you, Joshua. Avino Malkino, our father, our king, we thank you for the Gordon family and uh, for Joe and their participation in our community, their love for you. We do lift up Joe and the family and pray your blessing upon them, Father. We thank you for the word of God, for the acknowledgement and the consistent testimony that we do have an obligation before you, Avodah Adonai. Father, I pray that uh, you would find us faithful in service to you throughout this week and that uh, the Gordon family would sense the, uh, the love and compassion that you have for them through this community. And we thank you today, Father. Hashem Yeshua HaMashiach Adonai. Amen. Amen. Amen.